Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. You'll notice what we're doing this morning, folks. We are returning to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you probably thought I forgot about that, didn't you? But we've had so many special Sundays uh, that have sort of gotten us off the, the path in that. But we want to return this morning to chapter 7. If you've not been with us, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount a verse at a time and a passage at a time. And this morning, we just happen to be at that next passage that we come to. Uh, I'm hoping to deal with Matthew 7 in probably about, maybe about four messages. Thinking about perhaps combining some of the uh, uh, passages, some of the paragraphs but probably three, four, maybe five messages in chapter 7. This morning, I want us to look at the topic, the best known and yet least understood Bible verse in the world. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Jesus said in verse uh, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Father, we thank you so much for the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we know that it is the best-known sermon the world over. And yet, so oftentimes, we read it and just quickly pass over things. Lord, help us not to do that today. Open our understanding. Give us your insight and grace and mercy that we might hear these words and do them. I think of the story Jesus will close the sermon with, that if we want to be a wise builder, we not only hear, but we apply your words. That doesn't mean we'll be spared the hardships or trials in life because the storms still come. But it means that our house will stand because it's built on the rock. Lord, help us to be hearers this morning and doers that our house would be built on the rock. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A grocery store checkout clerk in a particular city once wrote to advice columnists and landers to complain that she had seen people buy luxury food items like seafood or birthday cake on food stamps. Now a few weeks later, Lander's column was devoted to people in that small town who had responded to the grocery store clerk. 
One woman said, I may in fact be the woman the clerk was referring to who bought the seafood. I bought a bag of shrimp. However, the clerk does not know the whole story and therefore would have done far better to maybe reserve her comments. You see, my husband just lost his job of 15 years at the local plant that recently shut down. It was our anniversary. And I have a shrimp casserole that I make that is, is his favorite. Given his discouragement lately over his job loss, I decided to make this dish. However, because of our financial situation, we actually had to eat on it for a period of the next three to four days. Another woman from that town also responded. She said, I may be the one the clerk noticed buying the birthday cake with food stamps because I noticed that she stared a hole through me that day as I was in her checkout line. What she doesn't know is that the birthday cake was for my little girl. It'll be her last. You see, she has terminal bone cancer, and the doctors have told us that at most she probably, probably has six to eight months left. And so we tried to make her last birthday a very special occasion. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now folks, certainly as those stories indicate, the danger of judging is that we usually do not know what the other person may be going through. We don't know the whole story. However, let me say that with those stories aside, usually judge not lest you be judged is misunderstood and misapplied. Now there was a day not too long ago that if you were to ask people what is the best known verse in the Bible, there's little doubt in my mind that most people would have said John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not pierce but have everlasting life. In previous generations I think that would have been everybody's best known verse but I'm not sure that's true anymore today. I've shared a story with you about one occasion meeting here in my office with a young man in his early to mid 20's and he confessed to me he said pastor I didn't grow up in church. I don't know anything about the Bible. I said, well, you probably know John 3.16. He said, what's that? And I quoted it to him. And he said, I've never heard that before. He said, Pastor, is that the JN 3.16 that you see on big post boards in the end zone when they're kicking field goals? I said, that's what they're referring to. You see, there was a day that was a well-known verse, but a lot of people don't know that verse anymore. But you know what I find? I find that just about everybody, even unbelievers out in the world, know Matthew 7, 1, judge not, lest you be judged. That seems to be a verse known. However, knowing it, they don't understand it. In fact, I'm finding that even a great number of people in the church know it, but likewise do not understand it. 
Folks, we must not allow the world to shape what we believe about Matthew 7-1 any more than we would allow the world to shape our beliefs about any other portion of Scripture. Let's try to understand this morning in context what Jesus really meant. And we're going to see that under certain situations in the Bible, judging is not even just simply suggested, it's even commanded. However, as the context of Matthew 7 points out, we are never to be judgmental from a self-appointed ivory tower position. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is the prohibition. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Now what in the world did Jesus mean and what did he not mean? I want us to look at both of those this morning. What did he mean and what did he not mean? First of all, what does the verse mean? Now at this point it would be helpful to understand the context of Matthew 7. Jesus has encountered early on in his public ministry the hatred of the scribes and the Pharisees. You read the other gospel accounts and you see that even from very early on in Jesus' public ministry they had his life under a microscope and they were looking for any and every occasion that they could pounce on him. You read in Luke chapter 4 their reaction in Nazareth to Jesus' very first sermon in the synagogue there. Jesus read and preached a message out of Isaiah 61 and when he got done with that sermon we're told that the religious leaders were very offended and they took him out to a cliff. They were ready to throw him over the cliff and kill him on the spot. Not only was Jesus aware of their attitude toward him, but he along with everybody else knew their attitude toward others as well. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a a story or a parable that demonstrated their attitude toward everybody else. Not just their attitude toward Jesus, but their attitude toward everybody. He told a parable about two men who went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a publican. And the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that publican over there. They held the general person in absolute contempt. Generally speaking, the Pharisees had heaped regulations on top of God's law and elevated those regulations above God's word. Anyone who could not keep the regulations that they had set down, the scribes and the Pharisees viewed them as being the chaff of the earth that in the judgment of God was going to be blown away and burned up in the fires of Gehenna, the fires of hell. And so they held everybody in contempt. 
Now what made this worse is that as Jesus pointed out, the religious leaders had heaped all these expectations onto the people, but they didn't even keep their own standards themselves. They broke their own standards and they made convenient excuses for themselves while they looked down on everybody else for doing the same thing. No wonder that Jesus called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were corrupt. The Pharisees would be like a woman today, and ladies, I could just as well say this about men, even more so, but they would be like a woman today who comes home from work and she is utterly disgusted and she's fussing at her husband because she has just found out that her best friend is having an extramarital affair. And she's wondering what she's going to do about all that. Are they going to share with him because he's their friends too? And she's utterly disgusted about it. And after fixing supper and after cleaning up the kitchen, she's so mad, she sits down in front of the fireplace and she grabs up her favorite book, Fifty Shades of Grey. That's how the Pharisees were. They look down their noses at everybody else while being guilty of the same sins. Others might have been guilty on the outside, but the Pharisees were guilty on the inside. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has pointed out that sins of the heart and of the mind are just as bad or makes one just as guilty as before God, uh, before God is those who do them on the outside. It's like he said earlier in chapter 5, he said, if you're angry with somebody without just cause, you've committed murder. If a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery already with her in his heart. Folks, that's one thing that makes some people's comments about the Sermon on the Mount so puzzling. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are people the world over who would say, just give me the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. You can have Paul's words. Just give me the Sermon on the Mount. Jones says, what, have they never read the Sermon on the Mount? They act like it's just a collection of nice little moral stories with no bite to them whatsoever. But Jesus holds the standard so high that it is impossible to obey. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus saying, Therefore, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jones says, I am glad that as I read the high standards of the Sermon on the Mount that I have Paul's teaching on justification by grace through faith. Jesus points out how high God's standards are. And the Pharisees were no less guilty than anybody else and yet they turned up their noses at everybody viewing others as the scum of the earth and the dregs of society. And in that context setting yourself up as the standard while being guilty of the same is what Jesus meant. That's the context of him saying judge not lest you be judged. He even goes on to clarify the standard that you use is the standard that God's going to use against you. Whatever measure you use in looking at others is the measure God's going to use in judging you. 
Well, let's think about what the verse does not mean. What does Matthew 7, 1 not mean? The verse does not mean what the world has come to believe that it means. It seems that every single time anybody is doing anything wrong, anytime anybody is doing anything sinful, if anybody in the church makes any kind of comment about that, what do they say? Judge not, lest you be judged. They seem to think that Jesus means that nobody is ever supposed to call anything wrong or anything sinful. They act like nobody's supposed to be discerning or practice any type of godly wisdom. Now folks, as we're going to see in a minute, what the world fails to see is that their interpretation of verse 1 would not even survive what Jesus says in verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus said, don't give what is holy to the dogs. And don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and then turn and tear you to pieces. So if verse 1 meant what people think it means, then they would not be able to obey Jesus in verse 6. Because in order to obey Jesus in verse 6, you've got to make some kind of judgment, you've got to make some kind of determination about who the dogs are and who the pigs are. Let me go ahead and cover that verse now and we'll come back to the other. The dogs mentioned here weren't the little lap dogs. They weren't the little domesticated dogs that people have today. They were the mangy pack dogs that roamed the streets. And they lived off of garbage and they ate unbelievable things. And if anybody tried to approach, sometimes the pack dogs were known to attack people. Jesus said, don't give what is holy to the dogs. And then he said, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Here again, he's making a reference to wild hogs. You may not realize it or not, but pigs can turn on you and kill you. One of the latest sports, maybe there's some men in the church who do this. One of the latest things come up in... Recent years or decades, people go out places like Louisiana and Arkansas and, and they take pit bulls or American bulldogs, dogs that are trained to go after wild pigs and some of those pigs that have tusk and all and, and, and uh, sportsmen go out and they take their dogs and they go out into the wilderness and they hunt these wild hogs. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the videos or not on YouTube but I saw one one time that the dogs ran past the, the hog and the hog was between the, the hunter and the dogs and the hog turned heard and came after the man and just about tore him to shreds. You know what that makes me think of? You know what I'm thinking, don't you? That movie you probably saw growing up. Old Yeller. I see somebody saying it. Remember Old Yeller? That big yellow lab? 
The older boy, he goes out hunting the wild pigs on one occasion, and the branch he's on, he's trying to pull one up with a big, trying to catch one in a noose, and the limb breaks, and he falls down right in the middle of those wild pigs, and they tear him to shreds. And old yellow goes running in to save its master, and those wild pigs just about tear him up. Pigs will do that. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's talking to his disciples about giving the precious things of God, the Word of God, to people who are uninterested. They're like dogs and hogs. Now think about that. Jesus himself is saying that there are people who demonstrate by their lack of interest in the things of God, they're nothing more than dogs or pigs. And if you're not careful, here you are giving them the precious things of God and they'll trample them underfoot and they'll turn and tear you to pieces. You know who I think of? I think of the Lord Jesus himself on Palm Sunday. He's riding into Jerusalem and they're throwing those palm branches before him and they're laying their clothes in the road before him and all the crowd is saying Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord but by the end of the week what were they saying? Crucify him read the book of Acts the apostle Paul as he went to Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica and other places like that he'd be preaching the gospel people would be coming to faith in Christ and all of a sudden somebody would show up in the crowd and they would stir up the mob against him and, and then all of a sudden just like turning the light switch they'd turn on him one time in his first missionary journey there in Iconium, they turned on him so bad they just about beat him to death, took him outside town and left him for dead. You say, oh, surely nothing like that would happen today. You so sure about that? We've got some church members in our church out of First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida. They probably have about 10,000 people in attendance this morning. Dr. Jerry Vines, one of the best preachers. I mean, the man can preach the stars down. He's retired now. You, you ever hear him preaching, you know why they're running about 10,000. But anyway, he tells a story when he was young in the ministry and went to one of his first churches. I mean, that little country church, they just started booming like crazy. They were having to knock out walls and baptize people every single Sunday night. And after a while of that, the deacon said to him one Sunday, Son, we want to meet with you tonight. And he told his wife, I'm going to get a raise. He didn't get a raise. He's looking for another job. They didn't like all those new people coming in. And they turned on him. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But again, what I want you to see about that verse, verse 6, you've got to make a judgment. And so clearly the way the world interprets verse 1 cannot hold up to sound hermeneutics, sound biblical interpretation. And then down in verse 15, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, he said in Matthew 18, but inside their ravenous wolves. Well, again, to be able to spot the heretics and the false prophets, you've got to render a judgment there. And so it's clear as we read verse 1, if you interpret verse 1 the way the average man on the street wants to interpret verse 1, their interpretation can't even make it out of chapter 7 alive. And then there's other places in the Bible that demonstrate the same thing. I'll give you some illustrations, and I, after I'm not chasing rabbits, I'll give you some illustrations just so I can come around at the end and make a point, and we'll kind of package it all together. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul took the Corinthian congregation to the woodshed because they wouldn't put a brother out of the fellowship. They wouldn't judge him and put him out of the fellowship. There was sexual immorality going on in his life and Paul said such as you don't even see among the pagans. He's sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul said, instead of dealing with it, you're proud about it. He said, because you won't judge him and deal with it, I will. And so the next time you're gathered together, here's what needs to happen. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the soul might be saved in the day of judgment. Now Paul apparently is assuming that the man is saved, but he is committing a sin that will ultimately lead unto death. Well, God will discipline him unto death to avoid the sin from being able to continue and to defame the name of Christ. Now older commentaries didn't look at it quite that way. Older commentators, older scholars tended to look at the man in 2 Corinthians that they were supposed to restore again to the fellowship as the same man here in 1 Corinthians 5. But as newer commentators point out, the two men cannot be one and the same. You read the accounts and they don't match. And they point out what was going on in 1 Corinthians 5 is that the guy died. That something happened that we don't see today or at least coming through a, a person because we don't have apostles in the New Testament sense. That what Paul was doing was issuing this apostolic curse like when Simon Peter in Acts chapter 5 dealt with Ananias and Sapphira and on the spot Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. They say the same thing here. Paul talked about delivering him over to Satan and New New newer scholars say what happened is this guy died an apostle was able to do something like that on rare occasions and Paul says the church should have dealt with this early. And it makes you wonder if the church would have dealt with it earlier the way they were supposed to have dealt with it what would have happened to the guy? But the point I'm making is Paul rendered a judgment, a verdict. 
And then in chapter 6, he said, you're carrying one another in the local fellowship to court and you're suing one another. Why in the world are you going to be for secular judges and, and suing the guy next to you on your pew? He said, do you not know that the saints one day are even going to judge the angels? He said, what you ought to be doing is getting some judges, some wise people out of your congregation. Let them hear the case. Let them render a judgment. My point being, two cases right there in 1 Corinthians that says that there are situations that we are in fact to judge. John, in 1 John Another apostle writing, another example. 1 John 4, he says, you need to judge the spirits because there are many spirits who have gone out into the world who deny that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. What was he talking about? He was talking about false teachers and heretics that were infiltrating into the church and carrying the church away from sound doctrine. And John said to him, you need to make judgments against that kind of thing. And then in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus laid down guidelines for how to make a judgment and approach a brother who is caught up in some kind of sin and how you're to deal with him. That's just a sampling of random passages in the New Testament where, where principles are laid down that have to do with judging. And so again, what all of that means is that the world's interpretation that says, Hey folks, we just need to live and let live, so mind your own business, church. That's not the way to look at verse 1. Well, let's see secondly the process. Look at the process beginning in verse 3. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I hope you see that there is a time and a place for judging and a manner in which to do so. Even Jesus said so, as we'll see in a few moments from John chapter 7. Now, assuming you're at a point of needing to render some kind of judgment, what now? Jesus lays down a biblical process as the other New Testament writers did. He points out, beginning here in verse 3, that to begin with, you need to exercise a little bit of self examination examination and humility he gives an illustration here a lot of scholars think he's he's using humor I, I'm not sure that's what he's doing some see humor in it but here's this guy with the little speck in his eye the Greek it, it would be something like a little splinter or a toothpick in his eye. It's not, it's not insignificant. The speck, it's something big enough that it's there and seen and bothers. 
But then here's this guy that's got a rafter or a floor joist. That's the Greek for the word log here. That he has this big old huge beam sticking out of his eye. And he's walking around boom, boom, boom. You can see it if it's meant humorous. He's banging walls and ceilings and floor. Boom, boom, boom. And he looks at somebody and he says, whoa, wait a minute. There's this little dot in your eye. See, let me take that out. And Jesus is saying, what? Are you serious? Here's this guy with this big old floor joist hanging out. And he, he's worried about this little splinter in somebody else's eye. You know, there's something about human nature, as verse 3 points out, that we tend to notice little things in other people's lives while ignoring huge things in our own lives. Have you ever noticed how part of human nature that is? I think of King David in the Old Testament. Here's King David on, on one evening. He sees Bathsheba out bathing. He lusts after her. He, he has orders for her to be brought up to his room to him. He commits adultery. She conceives. Uh Uh-oh, now he's got another problem. He's got to hide this whole thing. So he has her husband brought in from battle. But the husband won't won't go into his wife because other men are in battle. So David says, now I've got a problem. He calls the commander and says, put Uriah there on the front lines and then have everybody pull back and leave him there alone. He's going to die. And that's exactly what happened. David thinks the whole thing's covered up. But along comes Nathan the prophet. And you know what? I always picture Nathan the prophet as having this long bony finger. You ever, you ever picture Nathan that way? And he comes and tells David this story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man who has all these flocks, all these herds. And the rich man has a guy coming into town to visit with him. And so the rich man wants to have some big feast where he kills one of the animals in the flock. And he doesn't want to kill one of his. And so he sees this little poor man. And and the scripture in 2 Samuel makes it clear that this, this little lamb, I mean, it's become like a child to this poor man. I mean, it's dear to his heart. And the rich man has that single little lamb taken away from that poor man. He kills it. He has all these animals. And he takes that one of that man. David hears that story and there is some righteous indignation in him. How dare that man do something like that? i tell you what should happen to that man. That man needs to die. Here comes that long pointy finger. Nathan says, you are the man. Here's David. See, here's in this story... Here's a little matter, well, comparatively speaking, a little matter. I mean, the ewe lamb was precious to the poor man. But nonetheless, it's an animal that, that is killed. What's David done? David's killed a man. He's stolen the man's wife and then killed the man. Something about human nature, we see little things and we ignore the big old things in, in our life. 
David was blind to his own fault, blind to his own fault, which was a lot bigger. That's human nature. Jesus said, if you go around judging others while being guilty of the same things or even bigger things, you, my friend, are a first-class hypocrite. Now, notice that Jesus did not say, just forget about helping your brother with the speck. Look the other way. Live and let live. Jesus didn't say that. He simply said, first deal with what's in your own eye before you try to help somebody else with something lesser. So exercise a little self-examination and humility first. In other words, get your own house in order. Then Paul, in a similar instruction in Galatians 6, verse 1, says, If you see someone in the church caught up in a sin, a trespass, you who are spiritual. Now, not everybody. Everybody can't handle this. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see again, Paul's saying exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Look at your own life, exercise some gentleness and humility. You can't simply go rushing in with guns blazing. Now the whole matter of judging, and I've used the illustration of church discipline because that would be a corporate example of verse 1. The whole point in that in the New Testament, the whole point of trying to help somebody with the speck in their eye is not punishment, it's repentance and restoration. You would think that some people think the whole point is to lower the hammer and punish. The whole point is ultimately you want to see a brother or a sister restored to fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. That's the goal. Listen, I want you to hear me very clearly in something. I want you to hear me very clearly. Folks, again, the only reason we're in this passage this morning, it's the next text that comes up. Some people say, why do he preach on that? Something he know, knows about. No, it's the next text that came up. You know what would grieve my heart in the church? It would be deeply grievous to me if somebody ever thought, because Pastor Scott, the other teachers in the church, they all hold the standards so high and say, thus saith the Lord, that if I've got something going on in my life, I could never go to them because they would lower the boom on me. That would be grievous. I want you to understand something. Yes, we may hold the standard high and even be firm if the situation demands it. Practice what families practice sometimes, tough love. 
But even in firmness, there's love. And where there is repentance, there is grace and there is mercy and there is restoration. It would be grievous to me if people thought that because we hold the standard high, there would be no, no love. Folks, we are to be conservative in doctrine. We're to hold the standard high. No compromise. This is God's Word. Hold the standard high. Be conservative in doctrine. And yet liberal with people in a sense. If somebody comes to you in humility and wants help and prayer, don't you dare shake your finger in their face and utter words of condemnation. Again, in all cases in the Bible, what is the goal? The goal is restoration. John, 20, uh, John 7, 24, Jesus lays down another similar principle for how to handle the process here he says do not judge according to face what's that mean don't judge according to appearances that's what the grocery store clerk in the story I opened up with that's what she was doing she was judging according to face she was judging on appearances without having all the facts Jesus said don't do that but again, he didn't say leave the matter alone. He just said don't judge according to appearances, but judge with a righteous judgment. And chapter 7, verse 24 of John is imperatives. It's not suggestions, it's imperatives. Don't judge according to face, but with righteous judgment. It's likely you may not know the whole story. And so you put all these things together in this process of how we're to deal with this delicate matter that Jesus is speaking of here in Matthew 7.1. You put everything together and you see a number of different things going on here. Let's summarize what they are. Number one, we're to exercise self-examination. We're to deal with our own lives, our own sins, our own shortcomings first. Secondly, we're to exercise humility and gentleness. Third, we're not to make judgments based on mere appearances. And fourth, restoration is the ultimate goal. Don't you love in the Bible when we're told a commandment or a principle or a precept that's set down don't you love it somewhere in the Bible where there's some story that sheds light on that verse and we have that in this case turn with me over to John chapter 8 John chapter 8 we see Jesus doing something in John chapter 8 that I think is a perfect summary of Matthew chapter 7 1 
You know the story. It's the woman caught in adultery. In verse 3 it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on sin no more. Now folks, what do we see there? We see that the religious leaders were just going to lower the boom. There was no grace, there was no anything. They only saw blood. Now what did Jesus do? He wrote in the sand. Don't you wish we knew what he wrote in the sand some scholars say that they, they believe what he was writing in the sand. Of course, it's, it's just speculation. But he's probably beginning to write their sin in the sand. And they saw that and kind of, uh-oh. And it says, from the oldest down, they began dropping their stones and going away. Self-examination. He who is without sin casts the first stone. In other words, self-examination, humility. Exactly what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Then notice what Jesus said to the woman. He didn't just say, neither do I condemn you. Have you ever noticed around Easter all these movies on the life of Jesus that have this scene right here? They stop right there. Have you ever noticed that? They stop. And then it changes scenes, goes on to something else. Jesus said, woman, neither do I condemn you. And they go on to the next scene. No, that's not where it ended. What did Jesus say? Go and sin no more. And so we see grace and truth being brought together. And that's what we have laid down by precept in the Sermon on the Mount. Standard high, no compromise, because God is a God of truth. And yet there's a process for dealing with people where there can be repentance and restoration Again, there's self-examination, humility, repentance, all of that. And then grace and truth can come together. It is not as the world says. The world today in 2016, have you noticed? They're wanting to do whatever they want to do and preacher Church member, mind your own business. Judge not, lest you be judged. 
they want to hide behind that verse. Misapplication. Misapplication. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? This morning, I want to ask you to do both. Be discerning. Everything is not okay in the world. People are expecting you and me to agree with anything and everything. A Christian cannot do that. God is a God of truth. But don't simply throw stones either. Examine your own heart because guess what? You and I have guilt before God too. Examine your heart. Practice humility. And deal with people with the goal of seeing either them come to faith in Jesus for the first time or that you would see a wayward saint come back to Jesus. This morning, if you have a negative and a critical spirit, just for the sake of having a negative and critical spirit, I hope you see this morning that you need to repent of that too. Truth and grace. Lord Jesus, help us to understand your word. We thank you for both the precepts and the illustrations that you give us in your word. That tell us and show us how we can be not just hearers of your word, but doers. Lord, help us to hear and to do. Lord, I pray that we would not compromise your truth. Help us not to follow the spirit of the age that is trying to rewrite your word and compromise your truth. But Lord, help us also to be salt and light and enter into situations and make a difference, have an influence. For Jesus' sake. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.